This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Welcome to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for joining us. If you find your teenager can sometimes seem highly emotional, non-communicative, or even go silent, it's often part and parcel of their growth and development during the unique adolescent years. Understanding a teenager's emotions is an area that our first guest has spent the bulk of his career on. Dr. Michael Reichert is a research psychologist, a practicing clinical psychologist, and author. He is also executive director of the Center for the Study of Boys' and Girls' Lives in Wilmington, Delaware. Dr. Reichert, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Leanne. Great to be with you, and I look forward to the conversation. I wanted to start by asking, what would you suggest are some basic principles for parents uh, to understand and be aware of when it comes to their teens and their emotions? Sure. You know, so much of my work has been focused uh, on boys, but I think this is worth saying to parents of boys, girls, and all children that we have development on our sides. We have the human natures of our children on our sides working for us. What that means when it comes to emotions is that human beings are fundamentally emotional and relational creatures. That's how we've evolved as a species. I I know that that particularly for parents of boys, sometimes that's eye-opening to say your son is is an emotional creature but it's, it's just fundamentally uh, who we are. And what that means is that your child wants to, needs to express their hearts to you, uh, their parent. Probably that's the person they want to talk to the most. So when I see a child, a teenager who has become clammed up or reticent or shut down, I typically think of it as an outcome and not something that's inherent or biologically wired. So in that case, if you're a parent who finds yourself with with a young person like that, as you described, what should you be doing, if anything? (laughs) Well, this is the hard part. (laughs) Um, You know, when we see a child who has gotten uh, shut down or withdrawn or refuses in one way or another to, to, to be their open hearted self, it's a way of shielding themselves from something that they find aversive or overwhelming. It's an outcome, like I said. And what that means is that the parent needs to self-reflect. How can I create a space in my relationship with my son or my daughter where they can feel safe, validated, not judged, and, and not you know, having to face consequences that, that they're unwilling to, to consider? Um, A lot of my work involves coaching parents on how to provide that space for their for their teenager. And often, you know, the space needs to be, uh, you know, the bulk of the time uh, that their parent is trying to provide that space needs to be child centered. You know, so much of what parents do to uh, adolescents is we interrogate them. We scold them. We pry. We 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 in one way or another 
essentially communicate that they're satisfying our need to know is the priority. And, you know, teenagers with that growing sense of autonomy and independence, they may decide that that's not, that's not a game they want to play anymore. So, you know, learning to be child-centered, learning to create a space where the child, uh, the teenager, gets to be themselves without worrying about whether the parent can handle it or can come along. I think that's the priority. That's the foundation. If you're a parent who hasn't done that and your parenting approach has been quite different leading into those adolescent years, is it too late to pivot? Yeah, no, it's never, it's not too late. So much of my clinical work involves what we might call remedial relationship building. And like I said, you know, we parents, we have, we have development on our sides. That's the, that's the, that's the really good news here is that uh, the child, even the child who is most uh, uh, turned away or shut down that child. And I've worked with, with children, uh, you know, teenagers, particularly boys who have been very, very uh, oppositional and defiant, um, uh, you know, major, major uh, breakup breakdowns in the relationship and the connection. And, you know, sure enough, when the parent figures out how to reestablish connection and reestablish trust, uh, that child, that teenager is right there, ready to go. So in some ways, the proof is in the pudding. That's what I say. Uh, we know we got it right when the results uh, uh, indicate that, you know, uh, that the trust has been reestablished. So what, what, I, what I would say to the par that parent that needs to go back to square one is start with something really basic. Start with what I, what I, what I call special time. You know, start by carving out a block of time in the course of your week and make sure that in that time uh, you are going to put aside all of your preoccupations, your worries, your urgencies, your, your upsets, and simply try to broadcast, try to spend time with your child, your teenager, and simply enjoy them. Locate that place in your heart where you delight in them, where they're not a problem to you. You're not focused on what's wrong. You're focused on how delightful it is that they're in your life. And, and spend that time, that 15 minutes, that 30 minutes, that one hour, and do it regularly. Do it each week. And what you'll find is like a plant leaning into the light. The teenager will find themselves initially mistrustful, maybe initially rejecting or, or worse. But if you can hang in there and simply take your son, your daughter, where they're at, and continue to, to broadcast to them that they're a delight to you, they will lean in. Uh, you're irresistible to them. Your attention, your delight, your interest is irresistible. Um, so I would say start with square one, you know? Yeah, you are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we're talking about understanding your teen's emotions with our guest, Dr. Michael Reichert, a clinical psychologist and executive director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives in Delaware. Dr. Reichert is also an author. You had mentioned that a lot of your work has focused on boys and boys' emotions. Take us through, because I know a lot of parents of, of sons struggle in particular with this. Um, you know, some of it has to do with how 
society perceives men, how men are raised, how boys are raised. But I wonder when we're talking about boys and their emotions during adolescence, how would you characterize that? From the standpoint of the parent, um, Leanne, I think the, 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 the most important thing is to understand the actual nature of boyhood itself. Our sons come into the world and they come in expecting to find a world that is designed to actually fit who they are. But unfortunately, that's not the world that they encounter. They encounter a world that, among other, other qualities, is very gendered and where there are pretty profound stereotypes for what it means, what the world assumes it means when a child is identified as a male or a female. Um, when it comes to boys, the quote unquote feeling rules that govern how comfortable we are with the range of emotion that a child shows us, um, those feeling rules are very gendered. And, you know, in terms of girls, it's not to be angry, to be a nice girl. In terms of boys, it's to be strong, to be emotionally strong, to not be scared, to not have emotional meltdowns. And researchers have found that by the time a boy is six years old, uh, a colleague of mine at Stanford University, Judy Chu, who wrote the book, When Boys Become Quote Unquote Boys, she followed a group of boys for two years from ages four to six. And what she found was that they changed radically during that two year period that she was observing them and talking with them and talking with their parents and talking with their teachers. They became, as, as she put it, uh, less present, less authentic, more uh, uh, hidden behind what they believed a boy was supposed to look like, talk like, act like, dress like, play like, and so forth. So already by age six, boys understand that they have to shape how they express their emotions uh, uh, to someone else through this distorting lens of gender, masculinity. And I think a very parallel process happens for girls. And, and they discover that the adults are actually in charge of it. You know, we parents, uh, educators, sports coaches, and so forth, we don't really uh, uh, recognize how we are building a boyhood or a girlhood uh, based more on stereotypes than on the actual human natures of the children that we're building these uh, sort of institutional structures for. Mm -hmm. A lot of my work, for example, is, is in education in schools. I've visited schools all over the world, some of the best schools designed for boys anywhere. And yet, you know, Leanne, in, in many of those schools, it's still relatively poorly understood that boys are relational learners, that first base for a boy to engage him in learning in a learning partnership with a teacher is for that boy to feel a connection to feel like the teacher knows who he is. Um, many, many schools are still designed with the idea that boys don't need a relationship. They're kind of a-relational, according to the stereotype. So, you know, what this means in terms of uh, emotions is that we have to understand better 
what the uh, context, the social context in which our children are operating actually are and how that impacts the feeling rules that are dominating, how easily they can express their truth, their true emotions. You know, one of the the game changers, I guess, in many ways for many parents today as we speak is social media and all these other voices coming at their uh, children, sons and daughters. And, you know, perhaps having them focus their emotions on, on other things outside factors. So how can a parent compete, if I can use that word, against that backdrop? Yeah, I know. It's a great question, Leanne, especially in light of new research. I just saw a study that was uh, uh, conducted by the psychologist at USC, Jean Twenge, and a partner psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, at NYU. They analyzed internationally um, uh, the answers to a question um, uh, about loneliness. And what they found was that since about 2012, 2015, there's been this, this spike in reported uh, uh, teenagers who were reporting that they feel anxious, depressed, and lonely. And Gene Twenge's theory is that this is the result of the prevalence of social media in teenagers' lives, that there's a, a, almost a dominance of how they comport themselves, being emotionally uh, literate and competent is more important than ever. We have only just scratched the surface of this topic. Dr. Michael Reichert, clinical psychologist, uh, father of two and uh, executive director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls Lives. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective today. Thank you, Leanne. Thanks for bearing with me and letting me talk. Time for a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss a new global report called The State of the World's Children 2021. Stay with us. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. A flagship report released in October 2021 paints a raw picture of the face of mental health in the world's children and young adults before and since the global pandemic, as well as into the future. Released by UNICEF, a global humanitarian organization focused on children, it's billed as UNICEF's most wide-ranging examination of this topic this century. The report, called The State of the World's Children 2021, says the burden of mental illness and diagnosed mental disorders is poised to impact an entire generation of young people. Here to discuss the report, Root Causes and Strategies for Parents, is the Chief Program Officer for UNICEF Canada, who's also a mother of three. Rowena Pinto, thank you for joining us here on Where Parents Talk. Thank you so much, Leanne, for having me. Rowena, I'd like to start by asking you, what was the impetus for this comprehensive report? 
Well, you know, as you might know, uh, UNICEF is the leading world's organization for children, and we gather data on all aspects of childhood. Um, so we're unique, uniquely positioned to advocate for the improvement of overall child and youth well-being. So the State of the World's Children is actually a UNICEF flagship report, meaning that we um, release uh, the, the State of the World's Children every year. Um, and this year, we decided to focus in on mental health. Um, as we know, COVID-19 has highlighted the concerns for all of us on mental health. And now we are concerned for, entire, for the entire generation of children and young people who have had to live through this. Can you take us through the top three findings of this report? Sure. Well, the most important finding is that young people in Canada and around the world are suffering from poor mental health. And it's it's, it's a very, very big problem. It's estimated that more than 13% of young people globally live with a diagnosed mental disorder. And anxiety and depression make up about 40% of these diagnosed mental disorders. And almost 46,000 adolescents die from suicide each year. And that's more than one person every 11 minutes. Um, in Canada, we did do a poll as well to see how children were feeling um, during the pandemic. And three quarters of the youth whom we polled said that they had really deteriorating mental health um, due to the pandemic. And a quarter of them actually said that they didn't know who to turn to or didn't have anyone to turn to with their issues. So as a mother of three children yourself, what would you say surprised you the most about these findings? I think one of the the biggest things that really surprised me is that mental health is, is more than a health issue. I think many of us want to be able to find a quick fix for this. But as I was reading the report and having seen my own children having to live through their, their, the pandemic and seeing how every aspect of their childhood was adversely affected, if you can think of school closures, they weren't allowed to see friends, they weren't allowed to play sports, they, they weren't allowed to go to playgrounds at some points. And um, all of that is really key uh, for children's mental health, not just for them to, for physical activity, it's beyond that. So one of the things when I was looking through this report is that it's really going to take a, like a really holistic approach and a real dedication from a number of sectors to really um, improve the situation for children and their mental health. Um, we know, in addition, many, many parents are struggling. Um, and if their parents are struggling with mental health, which many people struggled, including myself, um, over the course of this pandemic, that is also having an impact on our children. So without a really focused approach from a number of different sectors, like the education sector, you know, um, workplaces need to take it more seriously. Uh, recreation needs to take it more seriously. Um, we are probably not going to be able to see a lot of uh, gains made in this in the, in the near future. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with the Chief Program Officer for UNICEF Canada, Rowena Pinto. We're discussing a new flagship report on the mental health of children now and into the future by the organization UNICEF. So Rowena, I want to break down what you just said about um, in terms of, you know, how are we going to try to address this uh, holistically? 
people listening to this interview might say, well, you know what? We seem to be talking about mental health all the time these days. You know, most recently we have an example of uh, the goaltender with the Montreal Canadiens, Carrie Price, uh, uh, reportedly being treated for uh, mental health issues. So it, it, it seems to be on people's radar, yet the statistics that you shared earlier are so staggering. So what is the gap here? I think a lot of it is we're still not working as a community to change this. Um, I, I, I put mental health almost um, draw a bit of a comparison um, to a lot of the conversations we are now having about racism. Um, racism, which also uh, is a huge contributor to mental health. Um, we do see that more than one third of young people in Canada report experiences of discrimination and that has an adverse effect on their mental health. Um, and any type of discrimination based on race and gender and ability or sexual preference harms a young person's mental health. Um, but those are issues that have been going on for hundreds of years. It really took people who didn't see themselves directly part of the problem or didn't see themselves as part of the problem at all to really raise their voices. And I think that is the case for mental health. I think, you know, we are the mental health conversations, while they seem very widespread, are still very recent, if you really do think about it. Um, and we are seeing that what's really actually quite interesting is that when we're looking at, at mental health globally, mental health funding is, is, is not being funded adequately anywhere. Um, and there's no difference really between low-income countries and high-income countries. So in places like Canada, where you would think we have the resources to do a better job, we are, you know, having conversations. Um, you know, while there have been some gains, we have seen the federal government put some new money into mental health. Um, it still is a place that we need to invest more and understand more. And, and part of the problem is just like um, a lot of the very big issues like poverty, which also is a contributor um, to mental health, they're not easy fixes. So it's going to take something beyond then an easy quick fix of, of, of just a lot of money, a few programs, a hospital. And I think those kinds of societal issues are going to take more than just the same players um, raising the flag. I mean, a lot of the players are doing a great job, but it's going to take all of us to really make a change, especially for children. Let's drill down a little bit, Rowena, into some of the statistics you shared from the perspective of some of the root causes of these mental health conditions that you outlined earlier. And we're talking everything from anxiety, bipolar disorder, autism, schizophrenia, and others along that line. What can you tell us about the root causes and you know how they impact the increased prevalence of these different conditions? Well, poverty is one of the biggest factors that is linked to mental health outcomes. So we're concerned that um, an estimated 356 million children who live in extreme poverty globally um, are also struggling with their mental health. And one in Canada, around one in five children in Canada also lives in poverty. Um, and if you look at it from a race uh, breakdown, you know, black children can reach as high as one in three in some places. And the rate for status First Nations children can reach above one in two. So you see there's all these intersectional types of factors um, that do play a role as well. Um, poverty increases the likelihood that children and young people will be exposed to other risks that impact mental health, including violence, trauma, 
social exclusion, disease, food and water insecurity. Um, so these are things we need to take a little more seriously. Um, racism, as I mentioned, is also uh, uh, an impact and one of the root causes. Um, and they young people in a profound way that is probably not even well understood. Um, and in some of, you know, research suggests that it can interfere with school performance. It can um, affect cognitive, cognitive functioning. Um, and it limits access to healthcare and damages self-esteem. Um, and so, you know, it also, racism is also a barrier to some children receiving the help that they need. Um, there's some interesting studies coming out of the United States, for example, where white children are more likely to receive an ADHD diagnosis. However, black and Hispanic children are more likely to be perceived as just having disruptive behaviors. So those kinds of really entrenched systemic racist uh, racism is also having an effect. Um, gender plays a role. Anxi anxiety and depression are more commonly diagnosed in girls um, and probably uh, due to gender expectations, young people with disabilities, um, LGBTQ2S plus community. And then if you add on all of that are um, the increasing uh, global crises that all children are witnessing. Um, we have a number of humanitarian crises that children are being exposed to um, due to climate change. And we know that children are really, really tired of our leaders not doing anything on climate change because they're seeing their own futures being really gravely affected. Um, we polled youth and 91% of the youth that we spoke to um, said that they think it's common for young people to experience eco-anxiety, which is specifically related to climate change um, and all of the climate emergency. So the biggest one, I guess, uh, that we all talk about now is stigmatization, and it's still an issue. Um, and stigma blocks children and young people from seeking treatment. Um, and especially if within the family, um, there's still a stigma. So I think as a, as, a, as a society, we're trying, we are trying to break that stigma. But there, that is, you know, that could be very much related to how your family deals with mental, mental health as well. Rowena, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to ask you, for parents listening who are on the front lines of their households, potentially dealing with everything um, that you just described in terms of uh, mental health challenges or not, what advice or actionable steps can you provide for these parents to support them? Sure. Well, very quickly, parents, please take care of yourselves. Um, you are a role model to your children and any mental health issues or uh, lack of self-care is also going to potentially affect your children and your children see that. Um, you also have to have confidence that you know your child best. So if you see your child and you think that they are struggling, feeling sad, feeling lost, um, isolated, please, you know, reach out to your child. It might not always be easy. I have a 14 year old. Um, yes, I just get grunts at times, but you just have to keep pressing because you know your child 
more, you know, better than anyone else. And, and they will look to you to really guide them in this. Um, and, you know, help your children deal with things that you know, that, that you might know they are anxious about. Um, so the world is really, really difficult right now. Um, so we, you know, as parents, we need, to, we may, probably need to do a bit more um, to help children get into a proper routine and, and really um, deal with the new COVID world around them. The report is called The State of the World's Children 2021 by UNICEF. Rowena Pinto, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that is our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.